Don't film if you can live without filming. Those are the words of Viktor Kosakovsky from his 10 Rules of Documentary Filmmaking. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Each year, the Doc NYC Festival selects a short list of 15 of the year's most notable feature documentaries. On this episode, we hear from three of those directors, Kirsten Johnson, Garrett Bradley, and Viktor Kosakowski. Even if you haven't seen all their films, there's plenty to take away from this wide-ranging conversation. Kirsten Johnson was previously on this podcast five years ago, talking about her film Camera Person. Her latest, now on Netflix, is called Dick Johnson is Dead. It's a playful and profound film in which she creates fictional scenes imagining different ways her father might die. He plays himself. She kills me multiple times. Action! The resurrected dad. Yeah, the resurrected dad. (laughs) Garrett Bradley was on the podcast a few months ago discussing her new film, Time, that's available on Amazon Prime. Time traces over 20 years in the life of a New Orleans mother named Fox Rich as she fights to get her husband, Rob, out of prison. My twins will be 18 next month. They have absolutely no idea what it means to have a father in their house, what fathers even do. My third guest, Viktor Kosakowski, grew up in Russia and is known for ambitious projects like Aquarella, in which he went to great lengths to portray the elemental force of water, filming in the middle of ocean storms and dangerously close to melting icebergs. His new film, Gunda, is told from the point of view of farm animals, including a mother pig named Gunda, a one-legged chicken, and cows enjoying a romp in the fields. I can tell you these three directors do not waste time with small talk. Our conversation weaves through big concepts central to their films, mortality, racism, and the mass killing of animals. If that sounds heavy, I can promise the talk is imbued with warmth and laughter. In true pandemic fashion, we were connected by Zoom across three different time zones, Victor in Berlin, Kirsten in Connecticut, and Garrett in California. I kicked off the talk by referring to Victor's 10 Rules of Filmmaking. He wrote this text 15 years ago for a master class at the IDFA Festival in Amsterdam. Here's rule number two. Don't film if you want to say something. Just say it or write it. Film only if you want to show something or you want people to see something. I started by asking Kirsten what that statement means to her. First of all, can I just say, Tom, right on that you're having these conversations, small conversations with us filmmakers, and I'm kind of insanely honored to be here with Garrett and Vincent, who I've never, you know, never met you. Did I just say Vincent? I think I said Vincent. You got it, got it, Victor. Yeah. It's Victor, we haven't met. I don't even know how to say your name right yet, but, <laughs> Victor and Garrett, who I do know and love and respect, it's just really powerful for me to be in your company and in the company of your films. 
um, which I think are both stupendous. Um, so glad to be here with you all. And listen, I love making lists. I love breaking rules. Uh, I love all of the tools that cinema give us. And I love the different ways people use the tools. That is my response. <laughs> actually, actually, Tom, I um, originally it was not rules. It was ten advices to begin to the beginners. So, the Itfa um, asked me to write. They say, "Oh, we have many, many students. They want to talk to you, but what are you gonna talk about? Can you write something before you gonna talk to them?" And I was in airplane, and I said, "Okay, I will." give 10 advices to beginners. And, and it was just, just like this, it was very easy while my flight to, to Amsterdam, I just wrote them without thinking much. And now it became rules and became everywhere, <laughs> became like statement. It was not like this, it was just simple. And I like what you just said, I have my own rules. This is actually rule number 10, don't listen to me, just forget it, just do your things. Uh, Garrett, let me uh, bring you into this. And uh, I want to go back to that statement of Victor's. If you want to make a film, don't say something, just say it or write it. Um, and in, in your film, Time, there is a lot of things for us to take away about America's prison industrial uh, complex and its effects on uh, over 2 million families that, uh, that uh, have someone in prison uh, these days. But um, it's not a didactic uh, film. You know, there'd be many different ways of, uh, of approaching it. Um, so I wonder what you think when, when I read Victor's quote about film only if you want to show something or if you want people to see something. Yeah, well, I think um, it's funny, I'm smiling because there's just so many possible, just like it's a Pandora's box in the most beautiful way, you know? Let's I mean, fight, I think- Let's fight, let's fight, let's yeah, fight. No, no, I, I mean, I, I think like there's, like over the summer in the States and we had s these incredible protests that were happening. Um, and it was really to a certain extent, I think speaking to the role that images and that optics play in holding systems accountable um, which, which we have done, I think, for, for many, many years, at least from an American perspective, and in that context, specifically around white supremacy. Um, you know, you go back to Emmett Till's mother, for instance, right, and the importance of, of the image. Um, but I think that it also, right now, illuminates the absence of images when we are thinking about the prison industrial complex, when we're thinking about 2.3 million people being incarcerated, that's something that people can read. That's something people can understand on a sort of factual basis, but it also to a certain extent becomes relatively abstract. And so image making, I think in this way is a, is a very critical form of resistance because the erasure of the population is done by design. So I think that whether it's photography, whether it's, um, documentary film, whether it's even scripted film, I think we need to create more of a presence for communities and for issues that are um, purposefully erased or made less visible. So I think for me, that was the, that was a really key part of, of why it was important to make a film, you know? 
you know, when I hear Garrett talk about trying to film the invisible, Kirsten, I think about Dick Johnson is dead. You're, you're trying to film things like what the afterlife uh, might be like uh, uh, for your father. Um, I wonder if you can pick up on that and talk about, you know, what you were trying to visualize in Dick Johnson is dead that would otherwise be invisible. Well, I mean, I was ready to jump right in with Garrett because, you know, I think the dilemma of how invisible mass incarceration has been in our country uh, and how like insidious white supremacy is in our country, like takes all kinds of strategies uh, that are, you know, visual strategies, intellectual strategies, like pushing the filmmaking craft to do different things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, the first film I ever made in 1999 was about mass incarceration. And in some ways, I, I got that something needed to be spoken about, but the language I used to do it was not yet my own. And that film doesn't live on in people's imagination. Uh, it does for the people who are in the film. It does, you know, for the many, many families of um, people who are portrayed in the film, many of whom were teenagers when I filmed them who are all now dead. And this is one of the things, you know, like what I think about like that films do and what I thought about heading into the film with my father is like, you know, films, um, they're engaged with loss because they're engaged with time. And I can tell you, like when, when I saw that Garrett's film was named Time, I was like, yes, finally someone has named a film Time. Like it's such okay. a brilliant, this time. And, exactly. it's, and it's such a brilliant, I mean, it's the right subject matter, the right people for the name. And, but I was so, it was such a victory because cinema is time. And, you know, when a camera comes into the room, the future comes into the room. So that the fact that we are recording now, Tom, one of us in this group of people will die first. And we don't know when that's gonna happen or we might all die. Got it. We might die, we might all die together in some crazy plane crash, right? <sighs> but but this, this recording of us, it might be one of our last recordings. It might be one of our last words. So in this like sort of like, how do we make our expression matter? You, we, we all struggle with this, right? And then we who are filmmakers, we struggle with the loss that we encounter when we film people, even if it is like the imagination of them being gone. The imagination of my mother behind me is now an image. My father is an image, but they're here, right? The image brings them here. If these images weren't here, I could talk about my father, but you wouldn't be looking at him, right? And so, you know, like Victor was stating, one of the things that cinema does, it is allows us to see. And when you have things like white supremacy that is hiding in plain sight, so much so that we didn't use those words. Some of us did because we were like being like stepped on the neck by it. And then some of us were like, oh, there's systematic racism. Like that's what I was saying 10 years ago. I wasn't saying white supremacy. I now say white supremacy. 
And, and it's like, this is how we help each other learn, right? And like what Victor was saying about us as filmmakers, we get inspired by each other. We aspire to each other and each other's films, but we're also trying to figure out our own language. And we make mistakes in our language as we try to make things. So I said, Vincent, and you know why I said that? Because we say his last name. He is a master. We don't call Garrett Bradley. We don't call me Johnson. We all know what we call you, Victor. I don't have practice saying your first name because you have been named a master, right? And now we all know like master classes are done, Tom. We're not, none of us are doing master classes anymore, right? So we're thinking about language and how language is a part of this cinema language. I don't stop there. <laughs> Can I jump uh, because you said we didn't meet and da, 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 didn't meet each other, but in fact, I noticed a few times we are very, very close because, for example, I made a movie, no one has seen it, so I cannot suspect you, you stole my idea because no <laughs> one has seen this film. It was my first film. Actually, everybody thinks my first film is The Bellows, but in fact, before Bellows, I made another movie called Losev, it's about philosopher, who was 95, 94 years old. And he actually, when I came to him, no one knew him, no one saw his face. And my idea was to show his face to people because in my opinion, he is the level of Dostoevsky, but in 20th century, he's the greatest philosopher of Russian culture and no one, had, never, no one ever see his face. I came to film him. But he said to me, I'm going to die 24th of May. So, and he actually died 24th of May. But when he said it to me in February, <laughs> I protested, like, why you need to die? What is the reason to die? And he starts talking to me, explaining why he has to die. And his wife was, wife was staying close to, to him, and she was kind of making like this, kind of, yeah, she, he, Victor, he's right. He has to die. And I was protesting why we have to die. What is the reason for us to die? And she was, ah, Victor, you are so young. She listened, listened the philosopher. He's explaining me why we have to die. But what happened next? He actually died 24th of May. And I started film his funeral. And his wife was not agree with his death. She was disagreeing. She was crying nonstop. And I put, on this image, when she was close to his body, looking to his coffin with his body, she looked. She looks at him, and I put his voice, telling to her, "I have to die. Don't worry. This is the rules of life." But she's crying, crying, and he explained to her. I explained to her, "No, it's fine. Don't worry. This is the way it's supposed to be." Yeah, this is what I made when I was a student. And then I made bailouts and everybody think it's my first film. Everybody thinks Camel Person is my first film too, by the way. I think like, like, and, and could we even name our first films? But oh my God, I can't wait to see that scene, right? And, and it's, it's like, I haven't seen your movie, but I am inspired by it. And this is what I love about time in relationship to our encounters with filmmaking. It often happens that we find these like simpatico things, even though we are not like 
when I saw Time and I saw that Fox had created a life-sized image of Rob, I freaked out. It was like we had entered the time-space continuum together around like, let's carry our loved ones around on a stick, right? Like, it, you know, so, so I think this happens in cinema all the time that we sort of time travel through each other's movies. The film Time is a kind of risky title, right? And when I start watching it, I was a little bit uh, disappointed in the first play, in the first one minute. Like I said, oh, it's like a static. But when it's come grow, I realized, wow, it shows me something I never seen before. This is actually, this is actually interesting that I always, it's my biggest question, why cinema documentary exists? We know why we can say differently why fiction exists, but why documentary exists? Why, why it generally exists? And why I was insisting that it, it's not tell story, but show something, maybe story, but not necessary. I wanted to say that cinema documentary can show you something you normally, or you don't want to see, or you're not able to see, or you decided not to see. These three uh, way of seeing and not, not seeing. And when I saw a film time, I, I, in first, my first reaction was, I don't want to see it. But then I realized, wow, it shows me something. It does. And, and it, I was stuck and I started to watch it. And it gave me this, this exactly the, what I said. We don't want to, know, to see something. But documentary can say, no, no, no. Do it, watch it, watch it, watch it. It's like, again, it's like Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky sometimes uses technology. He, he say to you, you read his lines and you say, oh, it's a little bit boring. He say, and he's, he, he say to you in that moment when you feel it's boring, he said to you, I know it's boring, but read next line. <laughs> you're shocked. How he knew that what you, how he knew that you know, that, that, what, you, what you feel now, he knew it. So thank you very much for both of you for your beautiful films. Yeah. I mean, this, this is it, right? The setup and the reveal, the pleasure that one feels when one feels the boredom and then has it land that he knows you were feeling that. It's like, then you have community. Mm. Yeah, there's also, it's funny because you do bring a good question of just like why, like why we even make films. And I, I to me, I'm still... I'm still kind of in awe, like we're these species on a planet and we've figured out a way, somehow it's been important for us to understand ourselves, like to understand everything. And I feel like the camera and filmmaking has been this attempt for us, this sort of self-documentation um, that sometimes plays as either a mirror or a window, you know what I mean? And I think both can be powerful. I think that scripted and narrative filmmaking exists in a space that is aspirational. And I think that, you know, and I, I, I'm i gonna sound naive for a second, but I do feel like uh, maybe documentary filmmaking is also in a place where it's showing people that we don't have to script things for them to be aspirational. Like mm. that those things also exist in the real world. And we're finding ways to sort of prove that to a certain extent, you know? Tom, I suspect you, you you made something against me. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly feel I'm old-fashioned filmmaker, you know? 
they have revolutional form, revolutional ideas, and I'm with my the kind of traditional classic <laughs> documentary black and white. Suddenly, so no, no, your 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 gunda is like it's like it's allowing us to wish to be with the tiny pigs, <laughs> which is not a wish we knew we had, right? Like. Like, let me be down there. Let me touch that tiny pig. Let me nestle in there with that little pig. And the light that you allowed to like sort of wrap around those tiny pigs, it's, it's you know, I mean, I think like, I, you know, Garrett and I have talked about this a lot, like that there are not enough images in the world of African-American people loving each other. That we are like, we are oversaturated with the images of violence that is done to black bodies, but we, we, we haven't seen the love and we have not seen the love of pigs, right? Like the love of pigs is that's new territory. And it calls into all kinds of questions of like, oh, really? We're raising those little cuties so that we can eat them? Like, you know, those questions are raised by the loving way in which you film them, right? And it is a new way of seeing because we're seeing, you know, I mean, for me, it's the chicken with its head cut off, still alive is like, you know, the hallelujah moment, the, like how loud I laughed in this moment. Uh, I wish I could share with you. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, you know, sort of back to Garrett and like, why are we doing this? Um, what is, what is compelling us? And I think about like our human struggle with memory and how we sort of construct ourselves and our world in relation to um, memories that we can't hold on to, uh, but that we feel in some way. And so like, you know, there's a way in which all of us at this point in history understand our ancestors are with us and in our bodies, but, but to imagine who our ancestors were to sort of create hallucinations of them through cinema is to discover ourselves. And, and so, so, I mean, that was one of the things that happened to me through my mother's Alzheimer's is that I learned that my own memory was deeply unreliable. And her, in her state of Alzheimer's, just sort of like wrote over the memory that I had of her as a lucid person. And I was so devastated by the loss of my own memory and I knew my memory was capable of failing me. Um, and so that was part of what took me into camera person. Let me go back into this evidence I have of what I, this visual evidence of what I experienced and see how my memory lines up with it or doesn't line up with it. And of course it was just like revelation after revelation about the sort of fragmentariness of both what I had filmed and what I remembered. Um, but in the making of that, we brought my mother back to life. Nels Bangerter cut a shot of my mother's ashes and then he cut a shot of my mom alive. And for a second I was like, oh, she's alive. And that feeling was what like inspired me in some ways to say like, okay, can I do this experiment? And, and Garrett, like when you say like, why do we make films? I was like, it was okay with me if it wasn't ever gonna be a movie. I aspired to it being a movie, but what I wanted was the process with my father and the process with my collaborators and the knowledge that then we would have some evidence of what we had experienced and imagined together.
Yeah, and I think that that's just as powerful as something as something that's aspirate like that in and of itself is aspirational. Like, and we go back all the way, all the way to the beginning where you know the Lumiere brothers or whatever, just like going all over the world and documenting. There was a reason why they were documenting. They were trying to understand themselves, understand something they didn't know. Yes, there were so many other problems that were then funneled into that process. But at the end of the day, it is an attempt to try to understand why we're here, you know, and what we are. And but can I ask you, all of you, including Tom, why we are so slow? Yeah, because <laughs> we're not that smart. I think. That's <laughs> we did not decide what we what we do with our. What do we do? Why are we still discussing all this? Why human did not? So 200 years ago, in your country, in my country, was slavery, right? It was slavery. So when greatest Russian writers were writing novels, half of them were, were they have slaves at home. They, so they were writing great novels, but they have like 300, 500 slaves just in the, in the window making bread for them. So how we so slow, I don't understand. What was, how, how it's so difficult to understand that uh, slavery is wrong or, uh, or racism is wrong. How, why are we so slow to understand all of this? Why are we so slow to understand, uh, uh, for example, that to kill animal is same as to kill human and to mistreat animal, to to prison animal, to is, in, in, inseminate artificially, it's the same as to have a slaves. How, how we, why we don't, why are we still so fucking, sorry, so why are we so slow? I don't understand. Why we still don't understand what to do, nice way, have to nice way to die and have to, we still, so thousand, hundred thousand years, being in the planet, we still don't know how to handle fundamental, fundamental things. And mm -hmm. all the three films are raising this. I don't know, it's just amazing how people are slow, I don't understand. Imagine, imagine even 50 years, 70 years ago, in here, in the place I was, I can see here, I can see from my place, I'm on the hill, and I can see the, the huge, huge airport when, when it was huge Nazi parade. So it was just 70 years ago. We, it's an, no, like, okay, 80, come on. And it's like, and the, the next building, they were making, uh, they, they were killing people. So it's absurd, absurd. We are, have, how it possible that just around corner until at least we don't kill by millions this time, at now we were doing it by me that dozens of millions we were doing killing people last century now we are we start killed by dozens of billions we start killing animals what the fuck we always do why we always need to kill someone garrett you want to take that <laughs> oh yeah easy peasy uh i mean i don't know i mean i can say i can say briefly like um uh I was rereading Bury My Heart at the Wounded Knee recently. And it's just so beautifully written. And, um, you know, I mean, I learned this in school, but not 
not it wasn't written I mean I obviously not to the extent that I was reading it in and there's this question that you're asking has also been really circulating in my mind because the question is like why what is the when Christopher Columbus you know came into the to the cove uh, on the island that's now Dominican Republic and Haiti right and this idea of him needing to uh, please his patronage to to get what he could get so that he could continue to do what he wanted to do. For me, the big question is why why didn't you just ask? Why didn't he just ask? Why couldn't he find a way? Why can he use his imagination to think of how can we work together? You know what I mean? And I think that's because it only probably benefited one person and he probably knew that. And so he went about doing these terrible things that then set the tone for and created a methodology which has shaped the entire, all of the Americas, you know? And I don't know, like what, where does that come from? Like what is that instinct to, that you must take through, brutal, through brutality? You know what I mean? Like what is that instinct as opposed to asking, as opposed to seeing if there's another way first? I think that's really, that's a question that I don't know if we have as a human. No, let me let me try to pivot this back to your films. Oh, come on, Tom. We're like getting to the heart of the matter, man. <laughs> well, I mean, we're we're talking about big questions. We're talking about to be Tom, to be or not to be. <laughs> Where do you want us to go, Tom? We'll go there. We're talking about big questions of ethics here. And um, to go back to something that uh, Victor wrote in his uh, 10 rules, um, he talked, he, well, he says, documentary is the only art where every aesthetical element is almost always has ethical aspects and every ethical aspect can also you, be used aesthetically. Um, and I mean, Garrett, maybe I can ask you, because in, in, in time, I see ways in which the ethics and the aesthetics of that film are uh, tightly interwoven. Um, and I wonder if, if you see that or if you could reflect on that, the way the ethics and aesthetics of, of your filmmaking are interwoven. Yeah, I mean, I, I, feel like, um, I feel like images, you know, they, films, they exist in us like, like memories you know, and I think memories become facts in our in our mind, in our body. And so the ones that we're creating, the images that we're creating, we are we are offering facts to people. <laughs> and so for me, there's a lot of responsibility with that, but not in a way that is about propaganda. Um, I'm I'm really invested in in beauty. I'm invested in um, in beauty being just as uh, just as a, a powerful form of, of resistance and um, activism as as a revealing of the trauma that exists around that as well. And I think looking up at people, I think um, I think leaning into how people present themselves and move into the world to me is really important. I think sometimes we tend to, and I'm curious how, how you all feel about this, but I think we have a little bit of this preconceived notion that trauma or violence or um, giving up, breaking down, being vulnerable is somehow more true than our strength, than our victories, than the way, than seeing us um, move through the world as powerful beings, you know, that, that somehow 
those two things, one is true and one is is not true. And I think with with time, it was really important for me to, um, you know, I mean, we actually filmed for several, I think it was over over a year. And, you know, again, I didn't know that any of Fox's archive existed. I had completely constructed this film based on what I thought I knew. And I, and I knew in that moment that leaning into the way in which Fox presented herself, the way in which the family presented themselves to the world was the truth that I was invested in. I didn't need to get around that. I didn't need to be behind them to make it more real for anybody. So, and I think that the archive then being able to incorporate that certainly pre presents something that is holistic, something that's 360 degrees, something that shows a true evolution of somebody of a family's life in a way that is very difficult to do in two dimensional space, one frame at a time. Um, but I think the ethics for me really, really lean into who is this beautiful person that I see or the circumstance that I see? How do I strike a balance between my own observation and how they see themselves and how they want to move through the world. Um, and finding a, a bridge between those two things, you know? Um, my dad always says, uh, the eyes are dry, the organs cry. Um, and <laughs> when the eyes are dry, the organs cry. <laughs> and, you know, I, it wasn't anything like that I, that I understood consciously for a long time, but I think you know, one of the things that I've been really um, like deeply interested in as a human being is other people's eyes. And, you know, having been a camera person for 30 years, like the camera allows you to go deep into people's eyes. I mean, just like you did, like to go into Gunda's eyes is to go into a consciousness. But when you're going into someone's eyes from the outside, uh, you are reading emotions, but you are also projecting emotions. You actually have no idea what's going on on the inside, right? And, you know, tears are sometimes a clue. That, yes, something is happening, right? Which I think is in so many ways, like so, why so many of us have like the, the experience of filming someone crying is like, oh, you know, I'm getting in, right? Because something is coming out from the inside. So I think in some ways that's our attachment to tears and in some ways like, you know, tears are so um, in so many different cultures, tears have been held in because survival is necessary. Um, but, you know, I think like your act of resistance, Garrett, to to in some ways show the idealized self, the mm -hmm. idealized family, when what that family is up against is the vilification of their family, the criminalization of their family, you know, the, the destruction of their family. So that that becomes, you are elevating that idealization, right? In a certain way through your beauty. And I think for me, like the, the, the challenge and th the thing that interests me and sort of to go back to your question, Victor, around like, why are we so slow? We know, we know that we're that other people's pain sometimes gives us pleasure. We know that we experience that in our personal relationships. And we are mysteries to ourselves. Why did I just hurt that person I love? Why? I didn't want to, but I did it out of my own need. 
right? And then to sort of investigate, like, where's that need coming from? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think like when we ask these questions about the world and societies and systems and genocides, it's also like, we just got to like, look at our own blind spots and be like, wow, complicit, mistake maker, <laughs> injurer, as well as traumatized, injured, loving, blah, 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 all the things we are, right? Um, and that's sort of what I find so ex like extraordinary about documentary is that that like sometimes we get to see the contradictions. And 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 I think in both of your films, the contradictions exist in the world. We're killing cows, pigs, chickens. We all are eating them. You don't need to tell us that in the movie. Same with Garrett's movie, right? Tom didn't read the last line of this. It's written, maybe nice people shouldn't be familiar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, I just want to know, like, for you, like, I mean, just quickly, working with your father, mm. you know, I mean, the, were there were there moments where you were like, okay, is this, where's the boundary? Like, what's the ethical, the like, what was that process like for you? All the time, every moment, every day, like, you know, when I, you know, I had this dream that a man was in a casket and he sat up and I said, he said, I'm Dick Johnson. I'm not dead yet. And I didn't recognize this man, but I was like, oh, right. I'm running out of time. But then, you know, you know, I had this idea. We're going to do the fake funeral. Like, but by the time we got the money to do the film, I was like, oh my God, my dad totally has dementia. <laughs> and I know what dementia is. And I had, I had, affirmed to myself, I wanted to collaborate with him. I wanted to make it with him, not about him, that we were doing it together. It was about our capacities to like imagine together. And so, you know, I, I was like, this is wrong. You cannot make a film with a per, you cannot fully collaborate with a person who has dementia. And then I said to myself, but can you, right? And the contradictions that a person with dementia is presenting all the time. So like sometimes my dad, so I said to myself, okay, I'm not going to make my dad do anything he doesn't want to do. And my dad was like fully on board, like thought the idea was hilarious, wanted to make a funny film, but my dad would do anything for me. My dad loves me so much. He would do anything for me. He would throw himself under a bus, literally. So he's already ready to die for me. So can I kill him? Right. And, and, and so, you know, that like, you know, that's ethical questions like so, yeah, talking about to be or not to be. Come on. Don't bring us back to cinema. <laughs> you know, when I, when I, when I was a kid, I started to making photos when I was like five, six. I already was like making photos, photos in and then uh, then at four years old, um, before before that, when I was four, I uh, I had a like friend, little piglet, which became my best friend, and and then he was killed, and for me, grandma, I became vegetarian. Then I was then I then then life goes on. I'm vegetarian all my life. Then then I'm making photos, and that in certain moment I became filmmaker. I start making my movie in 35 millimeter. And then suddenly I learned that the film 
itself made from bones of animals. So for me, it was the biggest disaster of my life because so I remember the moment when I was a kid, I wanted to, I had two only desire, or to be a guy who protect animals like forest men who protect trees and, and animals in the forest against guys with guns and who destroy everything, or to be a filmmaker. One, way, one day in 14 years old, I decided to be a filmmaker. But then I realized that film itself, 35 mil, the, the emulsion made from bones. And for, I already made bellows. I mean, it was like disaster, catastrophe, just really disaster. So, and I didn't know how to hold it. I didn't know how, what to do now. So it was like, then I started to use 16 millimeter next film. I made Wednesday already at least three bones. <laughs> I reduced the amount of footage I made. And then digital came by luck. But when, but, but, but when I started making Gunda, you, you said, I always think art is, art, I always, if I ask you why art exists, I always think like this. We have kind of holes here, like little holes here. Victor is pointing to his tear duct. And our art is what art is doing, to make them bigger, exactly, then you can cry. But not because I show you something horrible, but because I show you something beautiful, you never seen it. So art help you to feel something you normally don't experience. So when I started filming Gunda, of course I wanted to come closer to her, but in, from another side, I said, no, I have to treat her as if I film person. I should not push, I should not come closer. And if she is moody, because sometimes she was moody, because <clears throat> in a couple of <laughs> a couple of hundred meters away was the slaughtery house. And yeah. when they, in once a week, they are killing animals, and it was a horrible noise. Animals were screaming so loud that Gunda was not like it was disaster for her. She knows what is happening. So in that days, I was not able to film. I knew she is she is nervous, and I, we just make step backs. But in the last episode. This was the most crucial moment where to put camera, have to catch her emotions and not where to put camera in order to not destroy her environment in order that she is free to go wherever she wants. Victor is describing a scene where Gunda's offspring have been taken to the slaughterhouse. She roams the farmyard in distress. But in the same time, to be close enough to see her emotion. And you don't believe me now what I will say. And I said to my team, if, if we will put camera here in the corner, don't destroy her, not in her way, but she will come to us. Not we come to her, but she will come to us. And my team said, why do you know she will come to us? I said, I, I don't know. My experience tells me she needs to talk to someone. She, and as far as there is no one around, she will come to us. So the, the, the close up, the only close-up in the film we have, she not we came to her with, with lens, but she came to us and she looked to the camera, almost saying, what the fuck are you doing with me? Why you took my kids? So it was just 
Tom, thank you for raising this question of ethics and aesthetics. It just, this job is really every single day, every single, every single moment to put camera here or, or you have to come tiny bit farther not to disturb, disturb environment of person or to, well, you can come closer. This is most important thing in this job. I mean, Victor, you just gave a wonderful illustration of, uh, of another question I want to ask. Another thing you write in your documentary rules is that you need your brain both before and after filming, but don't use your brain during filming. Just film using your instinct and intuition. Uh, it sounds like there, uh, Victor, you it's were really- easy, my friend. It's very easy. Imagine I'm a singer. Imagine I'm a singer. I came to the stage and I think instead of uh, a Verdi, I will say, Putin is asshole, Trump is an asshole, put them both in prison. You will say, what the fuck, I, I need your voice. I need, your, I need to feel how you are better singer than me, myself, right? You don't, you don't need me to speak to you with my ideas. You need me to show my talent, right? Same with filmmaking. You have to, you, you need brain to choose right song and you, but or to choose, in our case, to choose right subject and right aesthetic. But when you film actually, you have to just use your talent, use ability to see more than normal people, to listen more than normal people, to feel more than normal people. This is our job. And this is nothing to do with brain. If you, if you I believe, I, I will say something criminal now, forgive me and or put stones on me. I believe that greatest filmmaker of the world, Tarkovsky, spoiled his reputation by using brain too much in the last two films. He just put so much messages, so much humanistic ideas, so much knowledge, so much, and he killed cinema, in my opinion, in my opinion. He used to be poet of cinema, and the, in the last, he became, like a teacher of, of, of humankind. And this is killing cinema. That is, I always believe. When you film, forget about your knowledge. Read a lot of books before. I read a lot of books about pigs and chicken and cow. I made great scientists before I start. But when I start filming, I block all of this and I just feel together with her. I was reading her emotions. I was looking into your two eyes of Yunda and I was trying to feel your emotions. I don't know how you guys, but this is for me crucial. Garrett, I wonder about the role of instinct and intuition in, in your filmmaking on time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I think it's, I think to, to the same point, you have to be able to know something well enough that you can uh, let go of it then, right? Like to a certain extent, I think, um, for me, it's always important, and it was especially with with time, to to get to know the family, get, to get to know how they move through space, how they how they, you know, inhabit their space, so that I can. Um, my instinct is based on uh, knowledge, <laughs> you know, and my instinct is is also connected to intention that is informed. Um, so uh, I completely agree, and I think that 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 translates in a, in a literal way of like, I know what Fox's routine, I knew what her routine was while we were filming, right? So I knew how she was gonna move 
what her typical movements were in the office, you know? Um, and I, that I was making informed decisions, you know, on where my camera was gonna be. And I think it also on a, on a, on a less literal level, for me every, in the same way that you're speaking about like reading a book, you know, for me, it starts with a lot of conversations. I, every single project that I make, especially with time, started off with a series of conversations between myself and Fox and the family around why they wanted to make this film. What was their intention for wanting to make this film? And they said to me, our story is the story of 2.3 million American families. We feel we can offer hope. Our story can offer hope. So then for me, I felt it was my job to to take the abstraction of what hope can look like and try to distill that into um, something that's very specific and how, how does hope exist in their life? How can we see that cinematically in their life? Um, and then the intention, because I think also with documentary, for us, it's like, it's a real practice in honoring the present. It's a, it's, you have to honor the present moment. You can't be focused on the future, right? And so how do you, how do you honor the present moment? Something needs to be anchoring you. And I think that the anchor is the intention and the intention for me needs to be connected with the people that I'm working with. So it all kind of, uh, it all kind of lines up and there is a bit of a chronology there that, that is very clear. You put your finger on it, right, Garrett? It's, it's, it's when one films, one is in the present. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, you're talking about of making it with the family or making it movie with Gunda, like letting Gunda come to you is about trust. Mm -hmm. And trust is something that is built over time and that can be like broken in an instant. And so that that like, the hyper awareness in the present moment is realizing that everything's at stake. Mm -hmm. The trust can be lost. A trust that you've spent 25 years building can be lost in a moment. Um, and you know, that was like in some deep way, the high stakes of me making this film with my dad, like he's loved me unequivocally for 55 years and I can blow it with this film. I can break our trust and yet I'm trying to honor our trust by making the craziest movie I can in the service of defying his death, right? And I'm gonna do everything I possibly can. But Victor, I gotta tell you, I believe we are bodies. Our brains are in our bodies, our hearts are in our bodies, our eyes are in our bodies and our bodies are present when we film. So I'm not taking my brain out of the picture. My brain has served me well. My brain is always active when I film, but my heart is active, my eyes are active, my body is active, and my history, my history with in the world, but with the people I am with or the animals I am with, right? And so I'm holding all of that in my body and I'm holding the camera and the camera is not my body. Finally, 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 and, and I also love like what I love about these conversations, Tom, is that we 
teach each other new things about our own films. And like, you know, Victor, you just reminded me, my father had to work in a slaughterhouse when he was a teenager. And I, you just made me realize like, that's part of why my father is such a remarkable human. And, and I like, I hadn't thought of it. I didn't think of it watching your movie, but Magic. now in this conversation, I think about no, it. This is, this is, this is what is documentary about. Something you yeah. didn't thought before. You didn't put on script home, but bam, suddenly something happen and you catch it this is this is the magic of documentary it's unpredictable beauty thank you people this was beautiful i want to thank these three filmmakers for speaking with me kirsten johnson's film dick johnson is dead is on netflix Garrett Bradley's Time is on Amazon Prime, and Viktor Kosakovsky's film Gunda is distributed in the U.S. by Neon. You can watch this conversation and others from DocNYC at facebook.com slash docnycfest. Thanks to our team. Series producer Hannah Norden-Swan and web designer Cross Strategy. Doc NYC Live was produced by Allison Morgan. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.